Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout from the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware, and uh, where we bring you stories of the exciting research being conducted uh, by our funded scholars in the Hagley Collections. And I'm really excited to be joined today by Dan Traficanti, PhD candidate in Urban Studies and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, his dissertation project is called Patents Over Planning, Industrial Capital and Post-War Innovation Policy, for which he received support from the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. And um, in general, he's looking at federal programs for technology development and their relationship with private industrial interests. Dan, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Sure thing. Thanks, Greg. Uh, absolutely. Let's uh, get started. Um, why don't you tell us more about your project? So my project um, looks at the institutional history of the federal R&D system. So uh, the series of um, R&D agencies like NASA, the NIH, the NSF, that uh, since World War II have had a major impact on the American economy. So uh, these are programs that have spun off new technologies that have been really transformative to the economy and, and have helped spur long run economic growth. Um, so these technologies range from, you know, medical equipment and drugs to uh, the satellite system to even, you know, the infrastructural basis of the information and communication technology sector. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, if you sort of go down the line of, of the most impactful technologies of the last 60 or 70 years, uh, many of those technologies will have their birth in this uh, federal R&D system. And mm -hmm. like you said, I mean, I looked at the institutional history and and the policy history of this system, but then also I examined the, uh, the interaction between the, the business class and in particular industrial business and this, um, this vast federal R&D system. Mm. And, and what did you discover? What, how would you characterize this relationship between uh, publicly funded innovation and private capital, private industrial interest? Yeah, so it's a complicated relationship, uh, and it's a relationship that evolved over the course of uh, the decades uh, after World War II. At the start, the uh, I would say industrial business was highly suspicious of the state uh, taking on this new role as a, a direct promoter of technology, and this reflected, you know, a, a general suspicion of government intervention. Um, at the time. So I'm, I'm talking mm. here about the New Deal era and mm. uh, the sort of um, the wartime years and then these are the immediate post-war period. Um, industrial business during this period, I think, uh, worried quite a bit that uh, as the government stepped up and became a direct promoter of technology, that this role could expand even further and, mm. you know, for example, uh, intrude on key um, uh, key decisions that private business had been making up to that point vis-a-vis uh, R&D. Mm. So the key, uh, the key sort of intrusion that I explore in my work is patent rights. Mm -hmm. um, so this was kind of the leading concern uh, during that period, during the New Deal and, and World War II, that, you know, there was this, this big concern that the government could suddenly become, um, you know, could suddenly uh, build for itself and retain a, a huge set of IP assets and then could use the, those assets to compete directly with industrial business. Hmm. Um, and so that was a, that was a major concern at that point. But, you know, as I mentioned, the relationship evolved um, 
uh, over the course of the ensuing years. So, mm-hmm. you know, for example, as um, as the country moved into the, the space race with uh, the Sputnik launch in Russia and mm-hmm. and the aftermath of that in the U.S. So, you know, this is really the high point of federal research and development in the post-war period where you have the creation of NASA, the creation of DARPA, mm-hmm. um, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. So at this point, industrial business, I think, became more accommodating to mm-hmm. the federal R&D system. And this sort of evolution ha- has been explored by other scholars of, uh, of NAM, uh, the National Association of Manufacturers, mm-hmm. uh, who have also worked closely with Hagley. Uh, so Jennifer Delton, in her, her recent book, uh, summarizing the history of NAM, talks about how into the 50s and 60s, NAM uh, becomes a more moderate organization, or at least seeks to accommodate itself with certain features of the post-war uh, liberal consensus. And I suggest in my project that the, the federal R&D system was one of those features, hmm. that by that point, um, industrial capital had uh, had sort of seen enough of federal R&D and realized that it wasn't the threat that it took it to be 20 years hmm. earlier. Um, and at that point, the, the, the other key sort of feature of that is mm-hmm. by that point, uh, new firms had emerged that, you know, unlike 20 years earlier, uh, firms had emerged that relied almost exclusively on the federal R&D system mm. um, as a core feature of, its, of their business operations. So, <clears throat> you know, these are what we would call today the military industrial contractors mm. um, and some of the sort of high tech uh, firms that were really totally reliant on the federal R&D system. So that, you know, naturally had the effect of moderating industrial business as a whole toward the federal R&D system. Um, so I, I look at some of those, some of those factors that, that changed this relationship and made it more of a symbiotic one rather than mm-hmm. a um, directly confrontational one during the New Deal and, and World War II. And what collections have you looked at at Hagley to help you uncover this story? So mostly I've focused on the NAM collection mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I found that to be, you know, a real treasure trove of, of material uh, when it comes to these issues, mostly because NAM, <clears throat> as you may be aware, uh, split up its operations into different policy-oriented committees. And so, uh, you know, for example, they had a committee on the federal budget or a committee mm-hmm. on tax. So uh, it was relatively easy to find these materials because they had... Um, Starting in the late, uh, in the in the mid 1930s, I believe, NAM uh, maintained a patents and research committee, huh. and the name of that committee, you know, changed over the years. It, it mm-hmm. went from patents and research committee to the research committee, and actually, I think that's some reflection of this turn toward moderation. Uh-huh. Uh, later, it, it became the uh, committee on technology, the, the technology committee, hmm. and so, but. The, the, these committees always really focused on, you know, more or less the same set of issues. So, mm-hmm. you know, how can we look out for the interests of industrial business vis-a-vis R&D? Um, you know, what reforms did NAM want to see to the patent system and to patent law? And, a, you know, a major, one of the major focus areas of these committees um, was the federal R&D system mm-hmm. beginning in the 1940s. So that's, that was mostly my focus. Um, 
you know, I looked a little bit at uh, some of the other sort of uh, uh, broader materials released by NAM during the, d- during the period that I focused on. So, mm-hmm. you know, public relations campaigns, um, uh, you know, big, big public events where NAM tried to influence public opinion, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Most of those were still linked in some way to the patents and research committees, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, that was mostly my focus in the, in the Hagley archives. Did they land on any effective strategy for getting the federal government to divest its proprietary, well, its possession of innovative intellectual property? Yeah, so the argument, it, it's interesting because, you know, um, private contractor ownership of intellectual property that comes from direct inter, you know, government funding, I think has always been intuitively sort of unfair and uh, th- there's something wrong about it because mm. the very you know, basic justification for intellectual property is you assign a patent right or you assign intellectual property rights in order to um, compensate for the individual um, investment and resources that the, that the inventor mm. makes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the basic idea. But when it comes to the federal R&D system, you have a, a violation of that since the federal government is the funder of these projects. So from the very beginning, um, some of the more progressive policymakers and thinkers that, uh, that looked at the federal R&D system, you know, had this sense that, well, why are we giving these patent rights away? They were funded by the federal government. So industrial business always had to confront this sort of basic intuition that, you know, this doesn't look right. Mm. Um, and so they, so NAM and, and industrial business more broadly developed a number of arguments um, over the, the series of, of the decades I looked at. And uh, it's interesting to look at how the, those arguments evolved. I mean, it started in the 1940s with, you know, basically the idea that, um, well, there is something perhaps unfair with private contractor ownership, but it's a necessary evil that we have to tolerate in order to get private firms to partner with the government. And so if we don't give away patent rights, you won't have this partnership on which the federal R&D system relies because you, uh, you won't get the participation of, of private firms. And then as, as, you, as we got into the space race and then sort of the post Sputnik era, the, uh, the spin-off argument started to emerge, which uh-huh. is that, you know, actually there's some there's perhaps some broader economic benefit to allowing private contractors to, to retain patent rights hmm. because they can take these inventions and then spin them off and, and uh, create new technologies, commercialize them and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that was really the, the birth of the spinoff because NASA and to a lesser extent DARPA were seen as obviously having um, potential commercial industrial purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, you know, that has clearly been borne out. And then finally, um, you know, my project wraps up in the 70s and 80s. And okay. by that point, the spinoff argument sort of comes to full maturity. And uh, you go from in the 50s and 60s, you know, the sense that, you know, maybe there are interesting private commercial uses for these technologies. But then in the 70s and 80s, it becomes an explicit uh, policy that, mm. you know, the, the logic of the spinoff has now become um, an intentional developmental uh, uh, purpose. 
Mm-hmm. And so this is the this is the rise of, of what we now call the technology transfer consensus, where mm. um, this very feature, where patent rights, you know, are funded by the U.S. Gov- by the federal government, and then they're transferred to private firms, that that's actually an explicit economic development, um, economic growth policy. It's not it's, a bug; it's a feature. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's remarkable, and. When you were conducting your research in the Hangley collections, uh, were there any particular sources or documents that just were really exciting or really fascinating? Well, I mean, um, I yeah, one of them, I, I think, or one series of materials that uh, were extremely helpful is, um, you know, there was a there was a debate in the from the mid 1940s to the end of the 1940s over how to structure the National Science Foundation. Hmm. And there, the, the, the debate over the NSF was really a hugely important one because it kind of set the stage for further reform of the R&D system in the years to come. So a lot was writing on you know, what the NSF was gonna look like, how it would be structured, and then, and then critically what the IP policies would, would be. So would the NSF retain patent rights or would it transfer patent rights to private contractors? And NAM, I found you know a wealth of material on the NSF debate. I mean, NAM was very focused on it for if the five or so years where the debate was very active. Um, you know, famously there was a split between uh, a senator from West Virginia named Harley Kilgore, who kind of wanted a more progressive, New Deal-inspired vision for mm-hmm. the NSF, and then. Um, uh, Vannevar Bush, who was the the architect of of U.S. wartime science, who I you know I think generally is characterized as, as wanting a more business friendly version of the NSF, hmm. and so I found a lot of material on how NAM ultimately sided with Bush and aimed to sort of derail or um, you know block uh, Kilgore's efforts to develop a more progressive version for the NSF. Hmm. So that was one, that was one set of materials that I found, you know, extremely useful to my project. And you, one of my chapters is basically devoted entirely to that. Hmm. Another, um, another set of materials that, you know, I thought was just, were just really interesting was, um, as I mentioned in the, in the 1950s and 60s, this is kind of the birth of the spinoff. And Mm -hmm. this is also, this is also where you see firms uh, that had been reluctant to, to participate in the federal R&D system and, you know, we're perhaps suspicious of this kind of state activity. Mm-hmm. This is the moment where those firms, you know, have a sort of aha moment and realize that it's actually, it could be really beneficial to take part in this kind of partnership with the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so I found um, in the 50s and 60s, I found a number of, of statements in the NAM materials attributed to specific firms. So, you know, uh, these firms would send representatives to these meetings and then, mm-hmm. you know, they would say the, the representative from Monsanto, for example, or, I'm sure. um, so, so actually, you know, I, I found statements from firms saying, you know, up to this point, we've been suspicious of this. We haven't wanted to participate in it, but we've realized it's just such a good deal for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Monsanto in particular said, uh, we've wanted, we've always wanted to fund a program in exotic chemistry. <clears throat> which, which by that they meant just, you know, sort of blue sky, um, you know, uh, 
very sort of speculative or high risk R&D. fundamental research. Yeah, exactly. And this representative said, but we've never been able to justify the cost and it's always been too high risk. And then, you know, finally, we now see that participating in the federal R&D system will allow mm-hmm. us to develop mm-hmm. exotic chemistry. And um, so, you know, I think that that was a, a very telling uh, moment for these firms and for industrial business more broadly. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the role of the state as an absorber of risk is a much bigger story. And um, uh, it sounds like uh, we have the business sector sort of uh, learning this lesson in real time in, in your work. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think in some ways my project um, aims to, you know, I think the, the basic aim is to illuminate this relationship between industrial business and the federal R&D system. But mm-hmm. it's also a story of sort of, uh, you know, you could say the self, uh, self-reflection self on the part of industrial business and a very, very much evolving set of positions that uh, NAM and industrial capital is taking. And I think that's that's probably uh, illustrative of, 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 of a broader trend that, mm-hmm. you know, business uh, in the post-war, you know, liberal consensus period came to realize that, you know, perhaps there were parts of the state that uh, would actually serve our interests and that, you know, um, unlike sort of the knee-jerk reactions to the New Deal mm-hmm. or various features of the New Deal, you know, there, there are elements of the liberal state that can partner with business and, and, you know, produce some, uh, some good outcome for business. Mm-hmm. What might a more um, progressive or um, uh, uh, innovative innovation policy that is um, more supportive of the public sector, what might that look like? Um, would it be um, say contractors have to license uh, publicly held intellectual property or, um, for instance, what was uh, Kilgore um, arguing for in terms of what sort of system did he envision? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's a great question and there have been a lot of different, uh, I guess you could say different answers to that over the years. But mm-hmm. to start with Kilgore, he kind of, um, his vision for uh, the federal R&D system relied on two institutional choices. So first, Kilgore wanted a highly centralized R&D system. Uh, so unlike the situation that we have now, which is, um, you know, a, a, which has been called the pluralist, uh, a, a pluralist model for R&D, where you have a variety of different discrete R&D agencies that are uncoordinated for the most part, and each pursue their own mandate. Kilgore wanted um, a single powerful a centralized R&D agency with broad powers to uh, set technological goals um, and, you know, control uh, the the federal R&D budget. And this would really be a, an innovation planning agency, hmm. um, very much unlike what we have now. And that was, I think, seen as progressive because the idea was that if you make it a, a single centralized R&D agency, first of all, it puts it in the public eye and it mm. elevates it elevates R and D policy to you know perhaps the level of um, environmental policy that we have today with the EPA for example mm-hmm. or or OSHA or something. So you know if you have this uh, 
visible, you know, central agency, it, 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 it brings R&D policy to the public consciousness and, and, you know, inspires active democratic debate over how we want to structure the federal R&D mm. system. Mm-hmm. So that was the basic thinking there. Um, the other institutional choice was Kilgore was a supporter of uh, government ownership and retention of, of patent rights. Um, and that, uh, you know, I should also mention, which is an interesting, um, an interesting part of, of my project is that Kilgore actually saw government ownership of patents as an anti-monopoly measure. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. Because this was a period where there was uh, a lot of concern over um, the uh, patent hoarding by, you know, mm. major industrial giants. Mm-hmm. And and public R and D was actually seen by Kilgore and, and some of his supporters um, as a as a tool of antitrust, which is kind mm-hmm. of an interesting thing. That's that's sort of been forgotten decades later. But um, is the notion that if it's public property, everyone owns it, and therefore no one yeah and and can monopolize it, it. It thereby stop yeah, exactly. It 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 can uh, it can you know reduce the sort of anti competitive use of patents mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm had emerged by that period, by the 30s and 40s. So that I think also made it a progressive vision that there was this, there was this idea um, really coming out of the, the antitrust impulse of the New Deal. There was this idea to use public R&D as an antitrust measure. Hmm. Um, but the, I guess you could say the, the progressive vision for R&D uh, has evolved you know, over the course of those decades and um, one of the one of the ways that it did is um, sort of more progressive policymakers or or thinkers began also to take a look at which particular fields the R and D system is funding. Mm. Um, so this wasn't so much concern at the time uh, of of Kilgore of the Kilgore and Bush debate, but now you know it's it's common to see the, the critique that um, well the the federal R and D system is is too much uh, is, is too oriented toward military purposes mm-hmm. uh, or even toward, um, you know, we, you know, there's the, also the critique that we put an overemphasis on, on pharmaceuticals. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are, there are now uh, voices out there saying, well, we should take uh, this vast, you know, federal effort and redirect it toward climate oriented Hmm. Uh, research. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that that argument um, certainly, ha- you know, bears a lot of weight, particularly hmm. now. But uh, but that emerged as a as a new sort of progressive critique that hmm. let's let's look hard at which which uh, sectors and which technologies we want to emphasize. And it's more difficult to coordinate that kind of effort with the pluralist institutional yeah. organization. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, these those two things have always have gone hand in hand. I mean, particularly Mm -hmm. in the last, in the last few decades that, you know, number one, we need more R and D planning, you could say. And then along with that, you know, with R and D planning, then we can begin to really um, target strategic sectors and make informed choices about which technologies we want to see developed and commercialized and and Mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, thank you so much for talking with me about your work. It's a really fascinating project. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I mean, I, I benefited uh, tremendously from Hagley's materials. And, and uh, yeah, maybe one other thing I can mention is I, mm, I actually please. 
I think I was, if not the first, I was one of the first to look at um, the new NAM materials that um, that take the uh, the library's collection from the from the 70s and 80s all the way to the present. And I found some really useful material on the 80s as well, and how mm. NAM how NAM by that point had become more and more interested in in industrial policy mm. um, and in you know direct uh, federal support for declining industrial firms and, and the industrial sector more broadly. And this was, you know, this was really interesting because by this point, uh, NAM and, and industrial capital found it, found itself at, at odds with the sort of Reagan revolution that was emerging mm. by the, by the mm -hmm. late seventies, early eighties. Um, so I think that also adds some interesting nuance to the story of, of, uh, of NAM's evolution and, and their role in American society. I mean, by the end of the 1980s, you know, I think NAM and, and, um, and others had, you know, fully accommodated themselves to, mm. to Reagan and to neoliberalism and so forth. But I found this, you know, interesting moment in the late seventies and early eighties where particularly with regard to R and D, I mean, mm -hmm. NAM really had different, um, different ideas about what the government should do to support uh, certain sectors, um, which you know put itself at odd with at odds with uh, with the with the incoming Reagan administration. So that was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was very thankful to to get an early look at those materials. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm hoping to to return and 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 get a deeper look. Yeah, and hopefully we can uh, have another conversation about what you find. That would be great. Yeah, oh, that's great. And uh, thank you once again, Dan, and for the audience. If you would like more. Hagley History Hangouts, or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, why don't you visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>